All right, we'll uh, wrap up our conversations. You can find your seats. Going to be in Luke chapter 4. All right. You see how everybody's doing out there today. All right. You get bonus points for responding today. Everybody, as always, every holiday weekend is a Get Into Heaven free card, so you are covered. Thanks for being here. Um, We are going to jump into uh, our Advent series, and uh, we've titled this out of Luke chapter 4, The Year of the Lord's Favor. And um, it's easy to lose perspective in the, in the middle of a year like 2020, um, but we are the recipients of God's favor where we are, everywhere we go, and that is specifically because of Jesus, despite what we might be walking through. So I think it was towards the end of May uh, when some restrictions began to lift and Jen and I decided that it would be fun to take our family to the beach, and so we went to Dauphine Island in Alabama at the uh, recommendation of Aaron King, and we had a great time, and um, it was a a way that we could kind of be safe and just be apart as a family and get a little bit of rest, um, because as all of you know, 2020 is exhausting. Little did I know (laughs) in May that was just the beginning, and I was reading a book uh, called Dirty Glory, and I remember Jen kind of just peering over uh, at my beach chair looking at that. She's like, dirty glory. What in the world are you reading? And um, it's kind of a provocative title, um, but it really refers to the incarnation, the fact that um, God himself fashioned and formed man in Genesis chapter 2 out of the dust of the ground, and then miracle of all miracles, he actually entered into human flesh. Um, And we, as the people of God, are called to imitate him. And the subtitle of the book is, Go Where um, Your Best Prayers Take You. And so I want to read just a, a, a quote from that book. It says, God's story from beginning to end describes glory getting dirty and dirt getting blessed. And so the idea is that God himself takes on flesh to bless mankind. But um, it's easy to miss, I think, in the season of Advent, the idea that God actually did become a man, that he actually incarnated, that he actually had meals with people that he touched lepers, that there were jokes around a campfire, that Jesus really was God in the flesh. And his disciples had a front row seat to see what God would do if he were a human for three and a half years. So as I was preparing this week, I just began to ask myself this question. What would it be like if Jesus showed up to my front door or your front door tomorrow morning, not too early because we're doing virtual school, so maybe like 8 o'clock, and says, hey, I want to spend the day with you. Like if, if he were here in 2020, what, what kinds of places do you think he would take you? Where would he go? How would he spend his time? Now, um, I'm sure by American standards, he would not appear to be efficient I can almost guarantee you that he would spend an inordinate amount of time talking to someone that no one else remembers or cares about. Um, And I think this is a little bit of speculation, but as we look at our text this morning, I would say he would spend a large percentage of his time devoted for caring for the poor. And um, a little bit of the incarnation is meant to shape 
the way that we actually do and approach ministry. So Advent is about both celebrating who Jesus is and what he has done, but also as his hands and his feet, it shapes how we are to interact with the world. We're going to continue our Advent series from Luke chapter 4, and we're going to talk about what does it mean for us and what does it mean for Advent to be good news for the poor. I want to recommend a few resources right from the start. Um, the first is a website called Jubilee Plus, and I came across that. There, there's probably not a thing that I'm going to say today that hasn't been shaped or influenced by these folks. Um, they're doing a wonderful job in uh, England just spreading the gospel planting churches that change communities. That's what we want to be about. Um, but then there also are some books that I would also recommend to you. Dirty Glory, I've always, I've already mentioned from Pete Gregg. Um, Tim Keller's Generous Justice, uh, there's probably been no one that's done more for bringing a care and concern for the poor in this generation than Tim Keller and making that more mainstream. Pursuing Justice by Ken Wistema, and Andy Crouch, Strong and Weak, um, if you're interested in how privilege pr plays into this current cultural climate, those are all, I mean, those are all excellent resources. So I just want to recommend those from the beginning. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 4, and we are going to cover a ton of scripture today. So I would encourage you to take notes, I would encourage you to dive in, and this has the potential really, I mean, it, this can go one of two ways. I mean, you can you know, you can do your time in here, and you can listen, <laughs> and uh, you can go about your holiday weekend, or you can allow the Spirit of God to move in you, and for this to be a historic day in the life of our church. That's just how God actually works. So Luke chapter 4, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. Uh, the passage will also be on your screen, so if you would stand, if you are able, we're going to draw attention to God's Word, because it's holy, inspired, and we want it to be the standard of our life and our practice. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, and that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is Jesus' hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, right now we so are in need of good news for ourselves that it may seem counterintuitive to begin to think about what does it mean to be good news to the poor. I pray that you help us receive you in such a way that this bold statement that you make makes sense for us and that we would not want to live any other way. To do that, we know that you're going to have to come in and do real heart surgery because our world is not created this way. Um, it's not set up this way. Um, we need you to help us to pay special attention to your word. So we 
ask for the gift of paying attention, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear that your word, actually, when combined with faith, would make a difference, not just today, not just next week, not just when we do Love Jonesboro Christmas Shop, but for um, all of our lives and into the future, we ask that you would mark us with this word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 4 is Jesus's inaugural sermon in his hometown. It's the first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is proclaiming a very famous promise from the Old Testament that he is the Savior that's come into the world, that he's come to bring good news to the poor. These verses are Jesus's mission statement to the world. So in some ways, these Verses are meant to shape our mission to the world. And it's amazing that if God comes in the flesh, that some of the first words out of his mouth is, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. Can you imagine if you were poor and you were vulnerable and you were on the margins and Jesus was in your church or your synagogue and he began to proclaim I come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I come to proclaim good news to the poor. That tells us a lot about who God is and what his character and his nature is like. And my prayer, honestly, this entire week, I mean, I've been marked with this passage for a while now. I think I I first got my appetite wet for it when we um, did our community festival out here, and I just know that God's inviting us into something deeper and into something more, where his heart becomes our heart, and his priorities become our priorities, and his mission to bring good news to the poor becomes our mission to bring good news to the poor. This is not just another Advent sermon, but this is who our God is This idea of bringing good news is the idea of bringing the gospel, and it is intricately tied to proclaiming the gospel and the good news to the poor. What Jesus is saying is that he is here to reveal God's special heart and his special concern for the poor, and there is going to be a very special effectiveness among the poor. Now, this won't make sense to you unless you realize this is who we all were. Right? So if the poor is just this nebulous group of people outside with some socioeconomic concerns that you don't share, then it'll be little more than um, religious dogmatism. But the reality is the gospel proclaims this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We all were spiritually lost. We all were spiritually dead. We all were spiritually on the margins. And Jesus Christ came into the world, became poor for our sake. He left heaven. He incarnated, not in a mansion, but in a stable and in a manger so that we might become rich, that we might possess by faith all of the spiritual blessings that God has for us. We are exactly who God came for. We are the weak. And if we don't understand that, spiritually speaking, then the call to proclaim good news to the poor won't make any sense. But for some, this call goes beyond being spiritually impoverished. 
I think about my wife and I's own experience with poverty. My wife grew up and she was without a home for over a year. And the church stepped in in that season and provided resources and houses so that she could live and so that she could survive. I shudder to think now at this point of my life what would happen if the church had not been there. I myself grew up, never lacked anything physically. My needs were cared for, but I grew up in one of the most impoverished parts of my city. I went to the probably the smallest and the most looked down school in my city. And as I look around today, it is riddled with addiction and cyclical poverty and brokenness. And it is into that context that we all live. It is into that context that we are all called to. So I think to respond As God's people in the middle of a pandemic, it may seem counterintuitive, but God is calling us to take up his cares and his concerns. If there's anything that God's doing in Advent, it's he or in Advent and in the midst of this pandemic, is he's tearing down a paradigm of the church that is just for middle class people to come and to consume goods and to consume religious services. And he's actually putting his people, even though it's a smaller, more committed group of people, which is absolutely beautiful and is absolutely the picture that we get in Scripture, he's doing this deep work so that we would take up his care and his concerns for the poor. So I want to just take a tour throughout the story of God so that we understand God's special care and his special concern for the poor. First of all, let's think about the beginning of the story. Let's think about creation. There was no poverty inside of the garden, right? Poverty only enters the story as sin enters the story and selfishness enters the story and exploitation enters the story. You get... Uh, a glimpse of this throughout the life of Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers. It doesn't take very many chapters into the book of Genesis to see the ruinous fall where God once was the provider and God once gave creation for everyone to enjoy that people began to exploit one another. Work became difficult and man became selfish and poverty entered into the story. And if that were all of the story, I mean, God calls his people then in light of that kind of Genesis 3 world to begin to be a light to the nations. God created his people so he could have a people among whom he could dwell, but he also created a people among who he could work whom he could restore his kingdom promises. If creation did not have poverty, then you could imagine that redemption and part of its solution would address the problems of poverty. God's people were meant to reflect his goodness by caring for the weak and the vulnerable, and they were meant to be a light to the nations. We see this in the law of God. Look at Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 with me. This is about gleaning laws. You see this in the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. 
Israelites were not called to take everything that they could for themselves and to make as much money for themselves as they could. It says, when you reap, and this is talking about their fields, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. So built into the very fabric of ancient Israelite culture was this idea of gleaning, that there's supposed to be something left over for those that are the most vulnerable. So fast forward to 2020. That means that we don't use up all of our resources for ourselves or in pursuit of ourselves. We leave enough margins so that we can care for the things that God actually cares for. We talked about this last week, but the year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. It's when all of the debts are canceled. It's when we proclaim God's favor and His grace and all the captives are set free. And we're meant to be the Jubilee people of God where we bring good news. The Psalms, the Psalm book of Israel, it proclaims that that, that there is a God that takes special care and special concern for the poor. The Psalms are a book that proclaim the character and the, the worship of God. It talks about the things that we are meant to marvel at and to worship about. And in a lot of ways, it could be the things that we say that we want to pray about. Listen to Psalm 41.3. Listen to the blessing to those that take up the concern of the poor. Psalm 41, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, there's promises attached to this. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on the sickbed. Ever thought about that? God preserves those that preserve the poor. He keeps them healthy on the sick bed. He protects them from enemies. He gives them favor with people. Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8. This extols the character of God. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them seat with princes, with the, prince, with the princes of his people. God causes the needy to be raised up from the trash heap. And that's a physical, literal place. This isn't just spiritual metaphor. The gospel has effects that transform people from being in the dumpster and the alley of life, and it lifts them up to be seated with the princes. There is a socioeconomic reality with the gospel. Psalm 68, 5, this is who God is. He's the father of the fatherless. The protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. What is God most concerned with? God is most concerned with those that are vulnerable. If you need revival inside of your soul, we take up the care and the concerns that God has. The prophets, they pick up on this. One of the major problems in the Old Testament was the oppression of the poor. People basically closed their eyes to the needs that were all around them. And this is God's promise in the way that he wants to correct that. Isaiah 58, we looked at this this summer. 
And this is about a fasting that pleases and honors God. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. So what this is talking about is as we undo the straps and the yoke of oppression that we see all around us inside of the poor, there is a spiritual renewal that takes place in the people of God. So if you walk into this room, and listen, there are physical and emotional things that cause depression, but there is a way forward, and it's counterintuitive. It's to look to the needs that are outside of you, and the light of the glory of God will fall upon you as you care about the things that he cares about. Micah 6, 5, and 8, we sang about this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I just want to pick up on the action-oriented nature of this verse. It's to do justice. It's not just to love a concept of justice or to believe in equality or those kinds of things, but it's actually to pursue those things with your life. Fast forward to the teachings of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Chapter 6, verse 2, he assumes we're giving to the needy. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus assumes that we are giving to the needy. The final judgment, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. What is the distinguishing marker between true and false disciples? It's caring for the poor and it's caring for the hungry. Now, listen, I believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But that kind of faith produces what's listed in Matthew chapter 25. For I was hungry, this is Jesus speaking, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I said, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the final judgment, one of the the things that distinguishes true disciples from false disciples is how we care for the most needy and the most vulnerable among us. That's the life of Jesus. Listen to the church. Chapter 2 of the book of Galatians, where 
Peter and Paul get together to make sure that they are preaching the same kind of gospel and the church is getting the priorities right, you know? Because in Galatia, I mean, there were some things that were being added to the gospel. So Paul is telling his story and he said, we got together 14 years later. It was me and Barnabas and it was Paul, I mean, it was Peter and John and they all got together and these are the things that they said are essential. Galatians 2 verse 10 The only thing they asked us is to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. This was central to the life of the church in the New Testament. The first conflict inside the church, Acts chapter 6, is because they had set up this food distribution network where the widows or the most vulnerable among them Um, Some of them were not receiving the same amount of care. So the church rushed in to bring strategy and perspective so that the most vulnerable among them were cared for. Listen, that's a lot of ground to cover, but the story of God is the story of God's concern for the poor. And for us to be a group of people that don't just pay lip service to the gospel, but to actually take his word seriously means that we take up his care and his concerns. So I want to talk a little bit about some obstacles so that we can do this well, because this is going to take both head knowledge, where we see that this is part of God's story from beginning to end. It's going to take some heart work, because the the reality is to do this well, it's going to rearrange priorities and budgets and time and money. Um, So... One of the first obstacles to caring for the poor is that our world is simply set up to insulate us and isolate us from the needs around us. So if you live in a a fairly middle-class kind of reality, you are going to have to go out of your way to educate yourself on the needs of the world. Um, They simply won't come knocking at your door. The world is, our world in particular, is built to maximize comfort, which means that it will keep suffering people and suffering communities at bay and as far away from our affluence as humanly possible. So the more affluent you are, the more you will have to go out of your way to see the things that God sees. So part of today is just asking God to help us to raise awareness Another thing is, um, part of this is a good thing and part of this is a bad thing. There is a false dichotomy between the body and the soul that has been the predominant teaching of the church for the last 100 years. Um, A dichotomy is basically two things that seem to be opposite or incongruent, but the emphasis in evangelism, which we are passionate about, has been what happens to you when you die and making sure that people go to heaven when they die. And yes, that is a legitimate thing. But if you look at the totality of the New Testament, it's about a kingdom that's breaking in here and now. The advent is the advent of the king where we are called to pray that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we're called to labor inside of that. I mean, it would be incomprehensible to the church in the New Testament to preach a gospel that cared for people in eternity but left their needs absolutely unaddressed. So 
For us, we want to recover the reality that, that God loves people holistically, body, mind, soul, spirit. I mean, we can't just say to people, here's Jesus and pat them on their back and hope they make it on their way. But the reality is, when the kingdom of God comes, there's this reality where people begin to experience faith and life and flourishing and discipleship. And changes may be incremental and they may be slow, but they are sure and they are certain. The church is meant to lead the way, not just care about eternity, but care about here and now. There also is a, a false dichotomy between faith and action, right? We talked about this a lot <laughs> in the book of Hebrews, where Faith is mostly this internal feeling that we have. And I don't know, do I have faith? I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it right now. But the reality is faith in the New Testament is a verb, right? It's about action being taken. We believe most of all that faith is this private thing. It's this individual thing. It's between me and God. It's about my vertical relationship with him. But what we see played out on the pages of the New Testament is it has massive implications for churches and communities and societies where they encounter the living God. Listen to this quote from Ken Wistema in Pursuing Justice. And I think this accurately describes the church. It says, American culture, however, has twisted the golden rule, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, into the silver rule. Do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. That, extra, that one extra word, not, makes all the difference. The golden rule requires action. Do unto others. While the silver rule allows for passivity and neutrality, the golden rule makes action necessary, while the silver rule can just allow actions to be optional. Right? So faith is downgraded to this private feeling, this experience between me and God. And the New Testament commissions people to do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's why people are always asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? Because Jesus is saying, like, you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not just a feeling. It's an action. It's taking up the care and the concerns of other people. Another stumbling block that we often have is the myth of the deserving poor, right? There is nothing more antithetical to the gospel than the idea of deserving, the, de the idea of earning, the idea of proving. Our society is a meritocracy, which basically means highly motivated performers and high achievers are rewarded and we monetize absolutely everything. We monetize the value of human life, which is about $750,000 according to insurance claims. We monetize whose lives are more valuable. You see this playing out right now in the pandemic. The people that are the most valuable to society are the people that make money, right? And the most vulnerable among us suffer. The most antithetical thing that we can do is, you know, because like everyone in this room would agree, like if, if there were a five-year-old, I mean, if you've walked the streets of India with me and you come across someone that's five years old and they're down here and they're begging and they're asking for food, there's not a person in this room that would be opposed to helping that person, right? 
But there, there's something that happens inside the human heart when that five-year-old becomes 35 years old, right? And that five-year-old has lived on the streets and battled things that we've never experienced, and they turn to anything and everything trying to numb the pain. And then we kind of bring in the idea of deserving. Like, we want to help people that are kind of, kind of upwardly mobile, that are trying to do their best. But the reality is, if you look at the story of the prodigal son, like, would you help the prodigal son? I mean, basically, he's like, hey, father, I, I want to get my inheritance. I want to go spend it now. Um, he goes and squanders it, like, on reckless living and prostitutes. Like, who wants to give money to that person? But that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? There's, there's no such thing as the deserving poor. None of us deserve the, the grace and the mercy of God. Natalie Williams, she's from the organization Jubilee Plus, says this, The world treats people based on their behavior. Christians are meant to treat others on the basis of God's behavior. That's Advent. That's the whole reason that he came. The whole reason that we exist as a church is to help people encounter the grace and the mercy and the love of God, no strings attached. That's the good news of Advent. So I want to talk just a little bit about what this could look like for us. There is something intangible and there is something powerful about combining both word and deed. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's something where people are observing the church in action where they want to give glory to God. So there's something powerful about both word and deed, both life and a lifestyle that commends the gospel. It, it gets really hollow for a bunch of Christians to get together and encourage one another while there are people that are in need and um, are suffering all around them. So there's a real power as we combine both word and deed. If you want to begin, I would say do this. Begin with the needs that are right around you. I bet if you walk around tomorrow with the eyes of Jesus, there are people in your relational network that need some kind of care, that need some kind of tangible expression of the kingdom of God. There are people in your neighborhood or the neighborhoods right around you that need an expression of the grace of God. There are people in your work circles. It may not be the people that you directly work with, but it's going to be the people that they know that need a tangible picture of the grace of God. The school districts, I mean, the needs are everywhere. All of us have tried in numerous ways to come alongside and to see, but we want to begin in those concentric circles. So part of the Love Jonesboro Christmas shop it's not the thing that we're trying to do, right? I mean, it's just an event. The reason that we're doing the event is so that we can gain an appetite for what the kingdom of God is really like. And this, we're expecting God to do big things, but we're not putting all the weight on this one thing. We're actually doing this just as much for us as we are for them, or probably more so, so that our eyes and our hearts can be open to the things that God is most concerned about. I learned this from Andy Stanley, and I think it's a good principle. Do for a few what you wish you could do for the many. It's easy when we start to talk about just the, 
the, the reality of poverty that is all around us to be overwhelmed. Do for a few what you wish you could do for everyone, right? So that's what we're trying to do with the Love Jonesboro Christmas shop. We simply can't meet all the needs in the city. But there is something, there is a sowing and reaping principle in Scripture. There is a stepping out in faith principle in Scripture. There is Jesus, like when he breaks the bread and he gives thanks that God multiplies the efforts and the seeds that we sow. All of those things kind of are in play. And so I do believe that as we step out, that God will continue to meet us and to help us to grow. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11 says this. And this is really a, a question for all of us. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, this is what I want to encourage you if you don't think you have a lot to give. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. That basically means God has what you need so that you can flourish and do the things that he's called you to do. We either have an abundance mentality where we believe that everything belongs to God and he's going to provide for the things that he's called us to do, or we believe that we need to hoard up those things for ourselves. I'm not talking about wisdom. I'm talking about just an overall mentality of how we view the world. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be, in, in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So God is asking us all the questions. Are we going to be those that sow sparingly and reap sparingly? Or are we going to be the people that sow abundantly and bountifully and reap abundantly and bountifully? Right now, it's counterintuitive for us as a church to be stepping out in faith and sowing into our community. What's natural right now is to pull back our resources and to try to keep them all for ourselves. But the reality is you simply cannot outpace and you cannot outgive God. I have seen this at work in my own life for over 25 years. Every single thing that I have given away, he has returned to me a hundredfold, right? I came from growing up in a mobile home on the city edge of hot springs to where he's brought me today he really my story is one where he's brought me from you know from being the needy to make me sit with princes where i've sat in rooms with people that make millions and millions of dollars a year and they want to use them for kingdom purposes god wants to invite all of us as a church and as a church to take a next step right what does it look like for me to grow and to invest bountifully, right? Not sparingly, not what is the company minimum, you know? And, and we're committed to taking these steps as a church. But when I say we're committed to taking that, 
It means all of us together, right? The church is not some organization, but the church is people. And for us to take steps forward, to take up God's care and concerns, means we need financial partners, like unapologetically. God's design to run the church and the mission of the church is for individuals inside the church to tithe, right? That's giving 10% of their income to the church so that the mission of the church can go forward, right? That's a non-negotiable. That's not just an Old Testament principle. That's a reality of what it means to live like. And I promise you, even in our diminished state, if every single person that called fellowship their home would tithe, we would have no problem taking up the care and the concern of the poor. So one of our next steps as a church is to say, invite all of you into this is where, where God has us. This is what he wants us to do as a church. But then not only does God want us just to, it's not just like paying a bill to the tax man. He wants us to view all of our life and all of our resources as belonging to him. To have margin. Not only in the scriptures do people give a tithe or a tenth of their income, but they have other things that are left over so that they can give alms and care for the poor. There's all kinds of special offerings that are needed. And so that means we have to live in a way that doesn't make sense right now, right? Not hoarding up all of the things for ourselves, but actually sowing and investing into the kingdom of God. That's what it takes to actually become, to move from just this idea or to kind of be a group of people that, that kind of feel bad that there are poor in the world, to being a group of people that take action. So we all want to take the next step. But I also believe there are real gifts that are inside this room that God wants to use. I mean, I've been asking God, what does it mean for me to use the gifts that he's given me to care for the poor? Um, and I think I have some clarity on that. And there are people that are far more gifted at building systems and structures and using their gifts and fundraising. I mean, I really do believe in my heart of hearts that um, our love Jonesboro, just this little idea, can become its own nonprofit organization and make a huge difference inside of our city, right? But the only way that happens is someone says, God is calling me to do this. We are the church, right? So it's someone that God is calling and we help to equip to do those things to begin to break into those barriers and those places where we don't normally go and watch God work. And, I mean, honestly, that's, that's one of the most beautiful things that we have been able to accomplish as a church. And I just want to honor my friend Henry on the front row. I mean, he is a huge example of what it means to start small and to do something well as he's helping us cross barriers um, into the African-American community that we simply could not do apart from your work. So my friend, love you, and I thank you for that. And that's going to be a key, right? Because when we talk about poverty, we're not just talking about this abstract group of people. We're talking about a group of people that have purposely been marginalized and put to the side. And for us to begin to enter into those spaces, it's going to take real work and real reconciliation. And so you're on the front lines. Thank you, my friend. And there's more Henrys that are in this room, and there are more Henrys that are um, watching online that God wants you to use your best and your brightest gifts for the church. 
right? This isn't the place. This isn't the place. This isn't the place where we bring holy leftovers when we don't have any other margin left. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus went to the Father and he expressed the Father's heart. So, this this the next step for you may be investing your gifts and your time. And the only way that this goes forward, you this. This one message can't necessarily, it won't necessarily change anything, but it's combining God's desire and his heart with prayer and asking for breakthrough and asking for specific steps. And the beauty of Advent, as Jen shared with me right before I came up here, is that, I mean, there was 400 years of silence and where there was desire and a longing for God to come. And he comes in a moment and it changes everything. This can be one of those kinds of moments for us as a church where we actually listen and we turn our attention to the cares and the concerns of God and we watch Him work. That's the beauty of Advent, right? So He makes us into a group of people that have received from heaven good news and we become a group of people who proclaim good news. So I'm going to pray for us that God would do like just real specific work inside of our hearts and Trenton's going to come and he's going to lead us in a time of communion and maybe give us some more action steps. So, Father, I pray that right now, um, we know this is on your heart and we know that we're people in progress and we know that we can't change everything all at once, but we do know that you want something. And so I pray that you would get our best today. If it's a financial step that you want us to take, I pray that we take it. If it's a relational step that we take it. If it's a, a time and a, a gifts kind of priority that you would reorient all of those things so that we see Advent not just as a celebration that we enter into once a year, but we become Advent people where we demonstrate the rule and the reign of the King everywhere that we go. I pray that you would mark us as a church Um, this small, committed group of people that you've given to us, this remnant here, I pray that it would grow with real discipleship and with real faith and that you would multiply the effects of the gospel in us and through us for the sake of your Son. It's in his name we pray.